This is the Pondering Scripture Podcast, and I am your host, Jeremiah Cox. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those are important words penned by inspiration by the Apostle Paul to the young evangelist Timothy in his second letter bearing Timothy's name in the third chapter in verses 16 and 17. I thank you so much for listening to this Pondering Scripture podcast. I don't know if you've ever considered it, but the title of this podcast is very important. What makes Scripture so worthy of our consideration? Why would we want to be filled with the Scripture in our minds? Why would we want to meditate upon it? Why would we want to ponder it? Why do we think it worthy of our consideration? Why is a spiritual discussion devoid of Scripture inferior to a spiritual discussion filled with Scripture? What makes a sermon that is devoid of Scripture, and human reasoning is the name of that sermon, what makes that dangerous while it is glorifying to God to have a sermon that is filled with Scripture? Why do we want everything that we do to be in accord with the Scripture? It all boils down to this concept of Scripture being inspired of God. The word used for inspiration of God in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 is the Greek word theonoustos. It is a compound word. The first word being theos, which is God, of course, and nuo, which means to breathe. Thus, it literally means breathed out by God or God breathed. The ESV renders it as such. All scripture is breathed out by God. Essentially, what it means is that scripture is a direct product of God. The reason it's called the Word of God is because He spoke it. When we read the Scripture, we are reading the very words of God. Think about how I'm speaking right now, how you've spoken today. When you speak, your mouth emits not just the sound of words, but those words are emitted from your mouth using your breath. You breathe as you speak. I believe that's the concept of inspiration. It's as if God is speaking directly to us because He is speaking directly to us through the Word of God. These are God's words. And I would suggest to you that Scripture is worthy of our meditation. It's worthy of us pondering, thinking about continually, day by day, because of it being inspired of God. You know, there's a lot of people in the religious world who talk about the Word of God, and they appeal to Scripture. 
I want to suggest to you that any appeal to Scripture without this basic and fundamental belief in its inspiration, it being the very words of God, is vain. You know, seven times in the Gospels, Jesus asked the question, Have you not read? as he appealed to the Scripture. Seventeen times Jesus uttered the phrase, It is written. Jesus appealed to the Scripture many, many times. He fulfilled Scripture in his life. Jesus appealed to Scripture with the understanding that it is the very Word of God. It was not vain for Jesus to appeal to Scripture because Jesus did not just view Scripture as the writings of men, but as the words from God. Think about how some believe Scripture is merely a collection of literary works of men. If that's the case, then Scripture is no more value than any other work under the sun. You know, some claim, though, that its value is immensely higher than any other work, even though they have no faith in its inspiration. That's illogical. If the New Testament is no more a work of God than the Odyssey, then it's of no more value. If the words of the New Testament, of the Old Testament for that matter, are just as much a work of man as the works that we have compiled of various philosophers of the first century, then it's of no more value. Yet some claim its value is immensely higher even though they don't believe in inspiration. Another group claims to have faith in the inspiration of Scripture, but they don't show that faith practically in their teachings and in their practices. They claim that every word of God is found in the, the Bible, that it's the word of God, it's God-breathed, it is inspired of God, but they aren't very careful in their using it. They don't try to hold fast the pattern of sound words, if you will. We must believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You know, faith is obviously the fundamental thing that a man must have in order to have a relationship with God. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For you who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But anyone with a smattering knowledge of Scripture will realize that faith is a product of Scripture. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But let me suggest to you that if the Scripture provokes faith in God, it does it because God wrote Scripture, which means if Scripture is not a compilation of inspired, God-breathed words, then Scripture cannot provoke faith in God if Scripture is from the writings of men merely, then it must be any faith that we have coming from Scripture is faith in men. But as the Apostle Paul demonstrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he didn't write with his own wisdom, he didn't speak with his own wisdom, but with the wisdom given him by inspiration from God so that our faith must be in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. The description of Scripture which the Apostle Paul gives in 2 Timothy 3.16, that it is, in fact, inspired of God, God-breathed. It's not an optional principle. It's a keystone of faith, and it has deep implications. We must believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But what is that? What does it really mean that Scripture is breathed out by God? 
I think there's a very good example of this in Second Peter, the first chapter, what we might call the system of inspiration. What does inspiration really look like? What does that mean? In Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 16 through 21, in preparation of the refutation of false teachers among Peter's readers, he notes that their word as apostles is trustworthy. They spoke of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that he appeals to as a validation of his word as an apostle, especially respecting the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that he didn't follow cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, especially he appeals to the eyewitness account of his transfiguration on the mount when God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw who he actually was. They saw his glorious form that will be witnessed in the second coming of the Lord. And so their words about his second coming in power and in glory, they were not merely fables. They saw it themselves. They were eyewitnesses, ultimately, of what would be coming in the end when judgment came. But even more than that, he says in verse 19, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so a validating component of the apostolic doctrine concerning the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed that it is an eyewitness testimony. But he says we also have the prophetic word confirmed. That word confirmed is more accurately translated, I believe, in the King James Version and perhaps even more so in the American Standard Version. Instead of confirmed in the King James Version, the scripture tells us we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The American Standard Version renders it, and we have the word of prophecy made more sure. Then what? What's the comparison? With the eyewitness testimony. It's not that the eyewitness testimony was not sure, but what is even more sure than an eyewitness testimony of a man is the prophetic word. It's even more sure. It's even more stable. It's even more trustworthy. And this is why. Scripture is not of any private interpretation. That is, origin. It didn't come from any man. Men may have spoke it, but it didn't come from men. Why? Verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but here's how it works. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. The word for moved in the Greek is pharaoh. It means to bear or carry. And as Vine describes it, it is rendered being moved in 2 Peter 1.21, signifying that they were born along or impelled by the Holy Spirit's power, not acting according to their own wills or simply expressing their own thoughts, but expressing the mind of God and words provided and ministered by Him. That is what inspiration is. You know, we may pick up a pen or a pencil and write down our thoughts with words of our choosing, and you can say that that pen or pencil wrote those words, 
But what you cannot say is that the words ultimately came from that pen or pencil. We were those who took that instrument and made the instrument say exactly what we wanted to say, and that was without the will of that pen or pencil. Maybe that's a good illustration of inspiration. The Holy Spirit picks up those men, bears them along like a pen or pencil, and speaks or writes down the exact words expressing the exact thoughts of God. It didn't come from Matthew. It didn't come from Mark. It didn't come from Luke or John or Paul or Peter. It came from God. It came from the Holy Spirit. There are various examples of inspiration in the Scripture itself that can help us understand just what it means that the Scripture is inspired of God. Consider Moses being commissioned by God to be his spokesman and the leader of the Israelites out of Egypt and its bondage. Of course, God just using him. In Exodus, the fourth chapter, Moses gives very many excuses And he finally gets in verse 13 saying, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Now listen, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. Notice this especially. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. That's inspiration. Moses would put the words in Aaron's mouth, God giving Moses the words himself, and he would be as God to Aaron, and Aaron would be as his mouth. That's inspiration. In the seventh chapter of Exodus and verse one, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. That's inspiration. Jeremiah chapter one gives us another example of inspiration in the ministry of Jeremiah as a prophet of God. He is called as a prophet in Jeremiah one and verse four, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to uh, to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Verse 9 especially. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was not only commanded what to say and what not to say. The very words were put in his mouth. You know, we see that throughout the quotation of the Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. For example, in Mark chapter 12 and in verse 35, when Jesus was speaking with the scribes, and Pharisees. He said in verse 35, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, By the Holy Spirit, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice that. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. Who said it? David or the Holy Spirit? Well, you could say both, but ultimately the Holy Spirit said it. For example, in Acts 1 and in verse 16, in discussing the replacement of Judas Iscariot with another apostle, verse 16 of Acts chapter 1 Peter said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. In Acts 28, when uh, when Paul is before the Jews in Rome, in verse 25, it says that Paul told them, The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, so on and so forth. Notice, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah. In Hebrews 3 and in verse 7, quoting from Psalm 95, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Holy Spirit said that. Remember in Hebrews the 8th chapter, Jeremiah 31 is quoted in reference to the New Covenant. In chapter 10, that same passage of Jeremiah 31, 33-34 is quoted. But in Hebrews 10 and in verse 15, it says that the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, so on and so forth. The Holy Spirit witnesses to us. Jeremiah wrote it, but the Holy Spirit wrote it. That's what inspiration is. God using men to write down His exact words. So it stands to reason why we see sometimes the writings of prophets, or perhaps apostles, or a record of what they've said before, is spoken of in regard to truth as God is speaking through them. That's what inspiration is. But they are without the understanding fully of it because it's not their thoughts and it's not their words. It's God using them to communicate His thoughts through chosen words. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12, it speaks about the prophets who had inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he would be when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would come. They prophesied about it. Think of Isaiah fifty three, the suffering servant, as it's talking about Jesus ultimately and dying for our sins. They prophesied about that, but they didn't fully understand it. Yet it was true because God was speaking through them. For example, Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts two and verse thirty nine said, The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord God will call. That implied that the Gentiles were a part of these promises, to all who are afar off. But it wasn't until Acts chapter 10, after several things had happened, and then God gave Peter a vision that he finally understood what he spoke years before at the beginning on Pentecost. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, Acts 10.35, but in every nation whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. That includes the Gentiles. And so inspiration is God speaking His thoughts by the exact words that were chosen. So that's another degree that we need to understand. Not just that Scripture is inspired, 
but that it is completely verbally inspired, plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary meaning complete, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then verbal inspiration means the very words and letters are given by inspiration of God. And the New American Standard Bible, 1 Corinthians 2 and in verse 13, says that the wisdom that was revealed through the apostles was comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In the New American Standard Bible, it renders it those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You see, a lot of people think that inspiration means that God just motivated men to to think of something and write it down themselves, or even that God gave them the thoughts but did not convey the words. But inspiration is all inspired, plenary, and verbal. Those spiritual thoughts of God, His will and His mind, are conveyed through the very words that He chose. God didn't just give the thought. It wasn't just thought inspiration, but it was word-for-word inspiration. He gave the exact words. For example, in Matthew 22 and verse 32, Jesus appealed to one word to refute the Sadducees' denial of the resurrection— He said, didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He said, I am, not I was, which implies that if God is the God of the living and not the dead, there is of necessity the resurrection of the dead. Not to mention that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they may not have been alive in the physical body, but their souls were alive in the Hadean realm of comfort. I want us to think about that. If it's not completely verbally inspired, who decides which scriptures are inspired and which aren't? With inspiration, it is either all or nothing. Either all the scripture is inspired of God or none of it is. Some say, well, Paul was just speaking culturally here. Paul was just a man who was a misogynist here, so he taught this about women. But I accept what he says over here. Well, you're picking and choosing. That's not how it works. Who's going to be the arbiter of that? If it's not plenary, then we can pick and choose. If it's not verbal, then God placed the responsibility upon men to effectively communicate the plan of salvation in His will. But we know men are fallible. The reason why they could speak an infallible message is not because God gave them mere thought inspiration, but God chose the very words for them. Now, there are a number of very important implications from the inspiration of Scripture that are important to you as an individual. Firstly, if all Scripture is inspired of God, God gave the thoughts conveyed through the exact words these things aren't from men, they are from God, then total belief is required. For example, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. And Jesus, as we pointed out in Matthew 22, said that they were mistaken, not knowing the Scripture or the power of God. They were wrong because they didn't believe the entirety of Scripture but the entirety of Scripture is inspired. But then with the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Yet that was not only prophesied about and spoken about in the Old Testament, both through prophecy and through type, anti-type relationship, but it was obviously a fulfillment in Christ Jesus when He did raise from the dead, and there was evidence that verified it. 
and inspired speaking that verified it. They refuse to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You've got to totally believe the scripture if inspiration is true, and it is. Another thing that we need to understand is that the creation account is not a figurative account. It is a literal, six literal days it took for God to create the universe, and on the seventh day he rested. You know, there are even some brethren who are suggesting that it's really not a matter of importance. You can either take it as a six literal day creation period, or you can take the uh, age theory where the days aren't actually days, they're millions of years, they're an age, or the the gap theory where they are literal days, but in between there are millions and millions of years. You can't just take it or leave it. God either meant what he said or he didn't. It's either inspired or it's not. For example, in Matthew 19 and verse 4, when Jesus was speaking about marriage, he said, have you not read that he made them at the beginning, made them male and female? Now, if you take each day of Genesis chapter 1 to be many, many millions of years, then it couldn't have been that the sixth day, millions and millions and millions of years after the beginning could have been referred to by Jesus as the beginning. If you take the gap theory where you've got literal days, but in between are millions of years, it cannot be that Jesus was accurate in his speaking. It wasn't in the beginning that he made them male and female. It was millions of years after the beginning. Inspiration means that the Genesis account is literal. If we can't believe the foundational miracle of creation, then how can we believe any miracle? Someone will say, well, I, I believe everything is figurative language up till Genesis 12 is a popular position to take. So they don't even believe in the universal flood. It was local. It wasn't universal or it was just a, a figurative thing. It was a fable. But in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 through 6, Peter appealed to the judgment of the world using the flood as confirmation that the promised judgment of the last days would come when Jesus would destroy the world with fire. They say, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But this they willfully forget, Peter points out, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. If the scripture is inspired, which it is, then we cannot just believe part of it. We have to believe the entirety of it. We have to accept the entirety of it. That includes everything. The doctrine of heaven and hell and sin and salvation, the work and worship of the church, the organization of the church, all of it must be taken. We cannot just neglect parts of the Scripture because the Scripture is breathed out by God. He gave it to us for a reason. And then lastly, and very briefly, the Scripture cannot be broken. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, we're told to hold fast the pattern of sound words. That means if God said it, we need to hold fast to it. There's a pattern to be established. That takes effort. 2 Timothy 2, 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some believe that there will be no consequence in not taking all Scripture for what it is and applying it. Jesus told the unbelieving Jews when they were ready to kill him for making himself God by claiming to be the Son of God, 
said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. I especially want to notice what is in parentheses in the New King James Version, what Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. He's appealing to that scripture for a reason. They were called gods, and they were just judges. I am the actual Messiah, the Son of God, and I'm calling myself the Son of God. The scripture can't be broken. It can't be that I'm blaspheming, but they weren't being blasphemous. The scripture cannot be broken. I want us to understand that. The scripture cannot be broken. You may try to break the scripture. You may undermine scripture. You may refuse to believe in Scripture, but that won't change Scripture. If you try to break Scripture, the Scripture still stands because it's God-breathed and God's Word lives and abides forever. It cannot be broken. You will be broken, though. For example, in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus came fulfilling scriptures and fulfilling prophecies and showing himself to be the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Savior of the world, and they refused him and therefore refused those scriptures, claiming there was a different Messiah. He was not the true one. We're looking for the true Messiah who will deliver us politically and set up a physical kingdom who will not defy the tradition of the elders, so on and so forth. And when they rejected him, who is the chief cornerstone, they were broken. The scripture was not broken. Think about that. You cannot undermine the pattern of salvation, the pattern of the church, the pattern and parameters of fellowship, the pattern for God's home and expect to come out unscathed, because Scripture is inspired by God. He said it. That settles it, so we must believe it. I hope that that you take this thought with you throughout the rest of your day and week, and that it will be beneficial to you. Understand the importance of Scripture. Understand the value of meditating on it and pondering it, and do so recognizing that you'll be judged by that infallible word one day. If you have any comments or questions, email me at jeremiahstancox at gmail.com. But until the next time, we'll be seeing you.